mortal you may believe. We continue our study this morning of the Gospel of John. We find ourselves in John 16, and we'll be beginning in verse 16 of that chapter. For, uh, for context, you'll recall that this discourse is taking place. It began in the upper room. While John doesn't make much mention of the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, this is the Thursday night before the crucifixion, and he inaugurated the Lord's Supper, and then after supper, he uh, taught that vivid leadership lesson with the washing of his disciples' feet. Then at the end of chapter 14, he makes a statement, rise and let us go from here. So in chapters 15 and 16, what's happening is Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples, Judas Iscariot has, of course, gone now to execute his plot for the betrayal of Jesus, and we'll revisit that in chapter 18. Jesus and the remaining 11 are walking across the city. It's very late at night. It's dark. Unlike our modern cities, where if you walk across the city at night, there's street lights and illuminated signs, and it's hardly dark at all in Jerusalem at this time. Maybe, maybe late that night, there was the odd candle or lamplit window but the streets are dark. Jesus knows where he's leading them. He's leading them to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you and I say garden, and we mean a, a plowed-up plot of land, and maybe there's a few rows of corn and a, a few rows of beans and a few rows of onions or something like that. The Garden of Gethsemane is an olive grove, already ancient by the time of Jesus. Uh, it uh, exists on the very base of the Mount of Olives, east of the city. Just across the Kidron Valley, there's a small brook called Kidron that flows down the eastern side of the ancient city of Jerusalem, and one crosses that little valley and just barely begins the ascent of the Mount of Olives when one comes to this garden toward which Jesus is leading his disciples. And through this night of teaching, he's covered so much. It's the last night before he goes to the cross. And here, in this paragraph with which we will deal this morning, He's going to deal a lot with, with some model, a way of considering the passage of time, especially when circumstances are difficult. But it culminates in joy. Joy is a crucial concept for the believer. Joy is the Christian's remedy and antidote for a life where quite Quite frankly, quite often, circumstances are not what we wish they were. Now, you, you may have had or be having an, an astoundingly fun season. Everything in your life may be going just the way you want it to. I hope that's true. And if it is, seize this moment and, and revel in it. It's good. But it's also the case that, that for, oh, well, let's tell the truth, Pretty much all of us, there are circumstances at all times present in our life that just aren't what we would want. Right? 20 bucks for a quarter tank of gas. You know, and various odd viruses surfacing and resurfacing. And my wife came home from the grocery store the other night visibly rattled and quite terribly angry over the price of mayonnaise. 
Now, I've seen her angry and rattled before. I've been the cause of it on more than one occasion. But I can't help her with the price of mayonnaise other than offering to chip in and reminding her we do have some equity in our house if we need to pull it out to, you know, buy the groceries. And some of you have gotten that medical diagnosis you never wanted where it appears and is quite possible that that diagnosis with which you are dealing right now may be the last significant medical diagnosis you ever hear because this one that appears is going to end your life. At least your life in this age. Some of you have said goodbye to loved ones or friends recently enough that the pain is still quite acute. Happiness is not the remedy for the pains of this world. Happiness, as the, as the very structure of the word suggests, happiness is, is, is rooted in what's happening. When, when things go my way for a moment, I am, for a moment, happy. But it is, it is quite fragile and quite fleeting, this thing of happiness. And often, we've made the mistake of, of defining joy, which is a critical concept in the passage before us, which I will read in a moment. We have defined joy as sort of just amplified happiness. I'm happy, but when I'm really, really, really happy, that's joy, but that's not joy. Joy is not rooted in happening or happenstance. Joy is something far more profound and far more durable than mere happiness. So let me give you this definition. It's not in your notes until you put it there. Here is a definition of joy. Joy is the deep awareness, the deep awareness that everything that matters forever has been settled forever because of Jesus. Everything that matters forever has been settled forever because of Jesus. And with that definition in mind, Let's join this walk through the city streets. I think I, I, think I see the scene. It's, it's late, it's dark. They're walking, and as a, as a group of 11 plus one, as a group of 12 men walking, they probably would stretch out. Jesus is up front because he knows precisely where they're going, and the, the 11 are behind him. And he turns for a moment to speak to them, and he says, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you'll see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. 
Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Can't help myself. Note what Jesus calls the little one that has been born. There was a human being waiting to be born and then a human being that got born and body of Christ, we must never forgive that nor give a centimeter to any other definition or we are in disagreement with our king, which must not be, which must not be. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have entitled this morning's message, A Little While, How Could I Avoid It? That phrase turns up seven times in verses 16 through 19. A little while. Roman numeral one, we have a puzzling prediction. As they're walking across the city, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you'll see me. Then he turns around and continues walking. And as will be the case when a group of a dozen guys is walking along, a couple of three in the back start going, do you, do, do you get what he just said? Well, I, I, heard, I heard the words, but I, 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 I no. You gonna ask him? I've asked him the last three times, you ask him. Well, no, I'm not gonna ask him. He'll know that I don't understand. <laughs> And so they start this conversation among themselves, which is, let her be a conversation. They, they say, what, what does he mean? This, a little while and I'll, you'll, not, you'll not see me, and then a little while and you will. And, and further, what does he mean when he has said, because I'm going to the Father? Now, he didn't just say that, but he's made that, that statement twice in 1412 and 1428 in this same evening of discourse. Their conversation is a bouncing around of, of their ignorance between and among each other. They just don't get it. Which leads to letter C, Jesus offering a clarification. Jesus recaps their puzzlement to them in verse 19, but then in verse 20, he offers this additional clarity. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Now this is not meant to be a trick question. By now you should have the answer to this. For how long are they going to be sorrowful? A little while. You will be sorrowful for a little while. But then your sorrow 
will turn into joy. So what is he talking about? Well, there's been, of course, probably as, as many books as any book of the Bible, the Gospel of John has had libraries full of books. And I, uh, I will not testify that I've read all of them. No one can have, but even most of them, but I've read many of them. And, and it's amazing authors here trying to, to puzzle out just specifically this, this, this something happens that creates a season of sorrow. That season lasts for a little while. And then there's a, a moment of great joy or the onset of a season of great joy. What specifically is Jesus talking about? Well, Jesus, of course, the greatest teacher that ever lived, I believe is talking about multiple things at the same time. And I think I can make the case that he's talking about at least three, and I'm gonna possibly on the fly add a fourth. Let's look at it, it's in your notes. First, obvious, he's talking about the immediate. They are, they are within just hours now of, of, of the onset of his crucifixion. In the immediate moment, right where, right where they are as, as, as the hours are passing toward the arrest, they will see the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. By, by 24 hours from where they are right now, Jesus' body will lie truly dead in the tomb. The crucifixion will have occurred. They will face Saturday. This one in whom they had placed their, 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 their literal lives, leaving behind previous roles, leaving behind family, businesses, very life-defining things that they've walked away from. And for this three years, they followed him, and now he's gone. The world is rejoicing. The Jewish leadership, the Roman overlords, the mob that has cried for his crucifixion. Joy among them, happiness with them. But for the disciples, Saturday is dark <laughs> for a little while. But then comes resurrection on the first Easter Sunday, proving that all that Jesus had said of himself and the eternal life into which he leads his followers, that it was all true. In addition to the immediate, I believe Jesus is also talking about the proximate. Now, that might, be, might not be a word you use every day, but it's a perfectly reasonable word. It means close by, but not on top of me. There's a, there's a, there's a close by fulfillment of this, I believe, in the ascension. Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom after his resurrection. He taught them for 40 days, and then he led them outside the city to the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and up he went. And the angels came and said to the disciples, you can stop gawking at the sky now. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm not wrong. And go into the city and wait for what he's promised. What Jesus had promised right before he ascended is 
I'm, I'm coming back in, a, in, in, in power in a way you've not seen. And I'm gonna dwell within you and among you in the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus can speak of the Holy Spirit in the first person singular. Jesus can say I and mean God the Father. Jesus can say I and mean God the Holy Spirit for there's only one God. So you wait for that. And so the disciples go back into the city and this time it's 10 days. The day of Pentecost by definition is 50 days after the Passover Sabbath. He'd been with them 40 days since he rose from the grave, and so for 10 days they wait. On day one, I imagine the conversation was, wow, the, the Lord is gonna, gonna come back in his presence and then we're gonna get on with the mission. This is gonna be amazing. Can't wait. Day two, same conversation. Couple of questions. I, I figured it'd be today, right? I mean... Hmm. Day three. <clears throat> Yay, we're still excited, right? Who's going to go for lunch? Day four. He did say a little while. The last time he said a little while, it was a day, and it's been four days, five days, a whole week comes and goes. But when the day of Pentecost had come, God the Holy Spirit descended on his church in ways never seen before. And their joy was established. That was proximate. I think there's a third way in which Jesus meant us to understand this. <clears throat> and it's this moment. This moment that includes the spring of 2022. Because centuries have passed. And as we deal with the centuries, we have seen so much pain, so much death, sin, Rebellion, stumbling. The, the gospel has advanced toward the ends of the earth, but it has advanced in massively imperfect ways. Miscommunication has happened. Mistakes have happened. It's been 2,000 years of, of difficulty. And yet, it's just a little while. And in just a little while, some generation will see his promised return. And if we can believe him for his appearing at Pentecost, and we can believe him for his resurrection, we can believe him for his return. I think there's a fourth way. It's not in your notes. But I think there's a personal regard as well. Child of God, if you know Jesus. <clears throat> if you have trusted Jesus Christ 
turning from your sin in profound repentance. One author I read describes repentance in very picturesque terms. He said repentance is when you are, when you are driven to vomit out your sin. I know that's graphic, but that's, that's, repentance is graphic. It's heart-wrenching. It is, I no longer love my sin. I desire that it be no longer a part of me. If you have repented and trusted Jesus by faith for his grace to save you, you may have seasons of difficulty and struggle. But child of God, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, if you've never trusted Jesus, that on the, on the basis of his salvation offered from the cross because of his substitutionary sacrifice, proven by his resurrection, one day ultimately vindicated by his glorious return, but you're not trusting that. You, 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 you're here so you might think it's, it's at least a decently engaging idea that God would make his salvation available and it might even be that you're considering someday that you would turn from your sin and trust Jesus Christ by faith. But for now, what it looks like is, is six lanes of level highway, very little traffic and you're rocketing into the future under your own control, thinking you have forever. Oh, my friend, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, you only have a little while, and the clock is ticking. The clock is ticking. A little while is great hope for the believer, great encouragement. Endure, persevere, stand on his promises, and know that in a little while he will make all things new. You're outside of Christ. A little while is a dire warning. Roman numeral two, he illustrates this principle with what I've called a perinatal picture. Now don't look at me like I made that word up, I didn't. Perinatal is a perfectly legitimate word. Prenatal has to do with those things that lead up to childbirth. Postnatal has to do with those things that follow on from childbirth. Perinatal has to do with those things that are right around the birth of a child. And Jesus offers a perinatal illustration, a perinatal picture in verse 21. At the onset of labor, when a woman is giving birth, letter A on your outline, labor begins. She has sorrow because her hour has come. Another statement that I never thought would be not universally agreed to. We live in odd times. I'm a man, I will never labor and deliver a child. Never have, never will, can't. Men can't have children. 
Ooh. And all the third graders in the room said, well, duh. <laughs> Till lost goofballs teach them differently. But I've been there a couple of times. It's no joke. Let her be. There's a little while that passes. And in that little while, all kinds of very dramatic physical things are happening. There's a lot going on there. And in the moment, it's not great fun. At the 8 o'clock service, I said that. And from over here came the loudest female amen I've ever heard in a worship service. <laughs> but then... Let her see. There's a baby. There's a baby. There's a moment that will always be very precious to me. Um, the moment in which I took this picture, I was blessed in just the, the way things worked out. They were, they were very, very restrictive limitations on the number of visitors and things that could go to the hospital, as one would imagine. In February of this year, when my, my granddaughter, Reese, was born to my son, Kyle, and his amazing wife, Avery. And I had the privilege of visiting in the hospital just a couple of hours after Reese was born. Now, I don't have Reese's permission to show you this picture. She's a bit young and doesn't give permissions yet but I certainly have Avery's permission, my, my amazing daughter-in-law. This picture was taken about two hours after Reese was born. I agree with the sentiment behind that all. And yes, it's self-serving and grandfather-ish for me to put that picture on the screen, but what I, what I want you to see is the look on my daughter-in-law's face. Because that's what Jesus is talking about in that verse. She's just been through the physical wrecking ball sensations of labor and delivery. But that's past now. And she holds her daughter. Jesus is saying, there are coming times of unpleasantness. Immediate, proximate, ultimate, personal. But if you will endure for a little while, there's coming great joy. Roman numeral three, <clears throat> his Pentecostal promise. Here in the moment, I believe here he is most describing the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But again, all three are in view. He promises first the joy of his unending presence. Verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. I'm going to be with you from that time on, reinforcing and underscoring the fact of your joy. He said something that very much expresses this in Matthew 28, verse 20. Again, right before he ascended, he said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
He is with us in the person of God, the Spirit, who came to dwell within and among us on the day of Pentecost. Not only the joy of his unending presence, but the joy of his boundless provision. Verses 23 and 24, again, he says, in that day you, you will ask nothing of me. That is, you will ask nothing of me in person. For three years they've lived with him in the day-to-day. You know, Jesus, have you got a spare blanket? <laughs> The little questions and the big questions have all been in-person questions they could ask him, but, but, but that time is ending. But truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Now, he's made similar sort of broad statements about, about the Father's provision for those things that we ask in his name in prayer. He, this same discourse, he made similar statements in chapter 14, verses 13 and 14, chapter 15, verse 7, chapter 15, verse 16, and again here. But here he further unfolds that what he's talking about is asking regarding those things that pertain to joy. The joy of his boundless provision for his people. That's what he's talking about. You can pray for lesser things. You can, Lord, I hope I get 10,000 more miles out of those tires. And if I do, that'll make me happy. Because tires cost a lot of money too. But that won't bring you joy. Nothing eternal is affected by how long your tires last. He said in Romans 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But as with other New Testament uses of the word all, just like in your everyday use of the word all, all is bounded and defined by context. When you walk into a buffet and you say, I want all of it, you don't mean all the food on earth, you mean all the food on that serving line. I advise against it. When you say to five or six of your friends, let's all head to the house, you don't mean seven billion people. You mean you and your friends. Here, the all things in view are the things that pertain to joy. The only imperative verb in this whole paragraph occurs in verse 24. This whole paragraph is predominantly about things he wants us to know. And then one thing he wants us to do. One command. Ask. Ask. Ask me to ground you more fully in those things that lead to joy. Ask me to to keep you aware that everything that matters forever has been settled forever because of what I'm about to accomplish on the cross. You can ask about lesser things, of course, but you can know. Well, look at what he says. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. If you're here this morning and you're in Christ, I can't think of more hopeful words in the words, little while. Because in just a little while, my believing friend, he's gonna make all things new. 
Whether you meet him face to face by dying and going to him or whether you meet him face to face by living till he comes for you in just a little while, there will begin the fulfillment of the joyful eternity you have anticipated. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, it should serve for you as a dire warning. How long do you have till you stand face to face with the judgment of a God who doesn't have to judge you harshly, just righteously, and you will be condemned forever to hell. That judgment is coming for you in a little while. Come to Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust him so that the message of a little while is also for you a message of hopeful anticipation.